Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. You are listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Mason Summit. The kids are all right. How many times have we heard that since The Who coined that amped-up aphorism on their 1965 debut album? The more half-empty set of every established generation seem convinced that the subsequent generation has no talent and no respect for their elders. Could it be the obligation of every generation to piss off those who came before? But time irrevocably marches on, and great music continues to be made. Enter Mason Summit, a singer-songwriter who is still in high school and has two albums to his credit. Let that sink in for a minute. While his classmates were teepeeing their teachers' houses or spending endless hours playing video games, Summit was playing legendary live music venues in Los Angeles and honing his skills as an emerging songwriter. Summit's songs are sharp and accessible, his guitar playing is pleasantly frenetic, and his melodies and vocals show that he has done his homework by studying the masters of the craft of songwriting. So just forget all that stuff about Mason Summit being young. He is talented and motivated and has already earned his stripes. And if he keeps up his moving and shaking, future generations of young musicians will likely be studying his songs one day. Welcome to Independence Day, Mason Summit. Hey man, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm well. So getting started with you is such an interesting prospect for me because uh, it's hard for me to talk to you about music without talking about your age. So you're based in Santa Monica. You're actually in high school right now. I'm like, a senior. Man, like t- taking me back to these days of like playing in high school. Like, uh, tell me first, what got you started in music? What was the very first thing? Was it something that was happening in your household? Like, where did where did it come from? For sure, my household. Yeah, my parents. My dad was a huge bluegrass head, although I'm not. Um, he was an actor by trade, but he was a musician. Uh, was really more of his passion. And so he started taking me to open mic nights around the corner from my house when I was about nine. Okay. I had a baby tailor learning okay. my first cowboy cor- chords, um, Johnny Cash songs. So a lot of it was them. It was they who in- introduced me to a lot of the music that I still listen to. So did he have like musician friends that would come around the house and they'd sit around the, the dining room table and play songs? It seems like a bluegrass kind of thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, he also recorded a little bit with some friends so I could hear how that turned out. He had a friend who played bass that we played with a little bit um, when I was really young. He'd always just have a guitar or a mandolin or a fiddle watching the news or sports or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of pleasantly slash happily jealous of people who had it. I mean, my mom like sang in church choir when I was a kid, and she would drag me along. So I had a very early introduction to like multi-part acapella harmony music so I, I could that was written into the fabric of my musical code that it wasn't just a voice in a guitar or a voice mm-hmm. in a piano like all these different things were all part of it and my dad would always sing but like other than that there you know nobody in my family worked in the music business right you know and it's it's fortunate that you're from los angeles yes because oh my god you can be exposed to so many different things and then, so your first instrument, you're a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And uh, was that, how old were you when you started picking the guitar? Well, I took some piano lessons when I was really young because I loved Phantom of the Opera. And then um, my dad got a baby tailor and I started learning on that. I don't know how it came about really, but my parents would always play the Johnny Cash American recordings. Yeah, yeah. My mom got me really into the Doors and 60s music. 
I listened to a lot of Janis Joplin and um, had some like Beatles fake books, kind of just the complete Beatles and um, a little handheld tape recorder that I would, I have a tape of me like at age nine playing all those songs. That's pretty much it. It was just a natural thing. My brother plays guitar. Is he older, younger? Yeah, my brother's a lot older. And does he does he still do music? He does not professionally. He's uh, he got his master's at USC, and he's okay. he's like a professor and a writer. <laughs> he has a real job. Yeah, exactly. But um, a really good guitar player. Yeah, yeah. So like, I'm thinking of like, man, like for my high school years, it was like John Hughes movies were big, like Pretty in Pink and Weird Science and Breakfast Club and all these kinds of movies. And music was something that was so very important. Um, you know, tell me. I, man, I feel like a grandpa when I ask you this, but like, what, what's the music thing like in high school now? Now that we're in the internet age where everything's available all the time and kids have cell phones, like, I, what, just tell me what it's like. Well, I go to school with people that mainly do not listen to mainstream, like pop radio or top 40 stuff. So a lot of the people I know actually share my taste in old music. And obviously it's really easy to get access to. And all my friends have Spotify premium and they have their portable Bluetooth speakers. So I have a friend who just walks around school or biking with a speaker clipped on him, and everyone has to hear that music. Um, but, I mean, we listen to a lot of the same stuff, a lot of old stuff. It's really easy to to find people with the same tastes at my high school particularly, and it's a lot easier to find music and listen to it. In, in my high school, like the albums that were like standard issue, like everyone had to have, which is going to sound like a joke, were Boston's first album, Bob Marley's Legend, and Steve Miller's Greatest Hits. Now those song, those albums were older than we were, really. That was that was you know a couple generations or at least a half a generation before. But they, like every party you'd go to in Batavia High School in 1980s, mm-hmm. those are the albums you'd hear. Like what, you know, even in your high school specifically, because these are not. You know, you're not going to hear Katy Perry maybe at your parties. Right. But like, what are you? What are the albums that are a standard issue for your generation? Well, I think party music is a different thing. You know, I probably don't listen to a lot of music that gets played in those situations. Um, but albums that kind of a lot of people at my school can just connect over. I think Elliot Smith is okay. pretty universal for a lot of people. I find a lot of people who I wouldn't expect to listen to that kind of music who do. I'd say, like any of his albums. Yeah, and then when I say party, I'm using the term very loosely. Right. Well, when I when I'm when not I hang talking out. like jumping off the roof into the pool type of, of party, course. I'm talking about like you know a party for us was where I grew up. Literally, you'd go to the middle of a cornfield where no one none of the other adults were around, and someone had some beer or a keg or whatever, and you'd start a bonfire, and everybody would sit on the tailgates of their trucks and listen to Led Zeppelin. That's that was a party, you know. It's not like the kind that you're imagining, right? You of know, course, the weird science um, style parties. Well, I guess when I'm hanging out with a group of friends, um, this band Girls from San Francisco that broke up a couple of years ago, they came out with three records, two albums and an EP. They're really good. They're emotional, but they're also feel good music. If that makes sense. Um, if I'm just playing records with friends, there's a lot of Elvis Costello, Jeff Buckley. Grace, oh, yeah. I'd say, has held up pretty well over the past years. Um, a lot of people seem to love early Weezer at my school, okay. which I can I can get into that. I think it's funny because I feel like every school, you know, has its own little ecosystem, you know, and in college to a certain extent too, where like there's 
I mean, there's the big meta music that's always out there, like the stuff the big labels are pushing. But then someone in some school, like well, like Jeff Buckley, for example, someone somewhat esoteric, or maybe even Elliot Smith, where someone's a really big Elliot Smith fan, and then it comes, it goes sideways. Like, how much of the music of your school do you think comes from peers as opposed to parents' collections or older siblings' collections? Well, I like to think I've propagated a lot of uh-huh. music at my school. Um, I got a lot of my friends into this band, the Pernice Brothers, um, over the past few months. It show them to one friend who's always carrying his speaker around, right? And then everyone's hearing it. Um, the same goes for like uh, Elliot Smith, for sure. I just yeah. ever since I started listening to him, I've turned so many friends. So on where to did him. you hear from about? like Elliot Smith or the Pernice brothers? I learned about Elliot Smith from my um, eighth grade girlfriend okay. who told me to check him out, and I did um, the summer before ninth grade, so perfect timing for a high yeah, school yeah, yeah. soundtrack. Um, the Pernice brothers, someone, my mom's friend told me that I, my voice sounded a lot like the guy from the Pernice brothers, Joe Pernice. So I checked out his first little alt-country band, the Scud Mountain Boys, and then I checked out the Pernice brothers, and they're incredible. Yeah. Also, um, John Bryan's first album has been something that in recent months I've shown a lot of people. It's not actually available on iTunes or Spotify, so it's pretty hard to come by. But um, that has become big for a lot of my friends recently. Yeah. And are your friends, oh man, here's like the big gold star question of all. Since your friends, I mean, you've got Spotify, you've got Pandora, you've got all these streaming services. Are you are you are you and your friends buying music? Physical I, music. Um, I mean, not CDs. I know tape has made a big comeback in some circles, cassette tapes, right. um, because a lot of bands are signed to these indie kind of garage rock labels like Burger Records or something, um, and tape is cheaper to produce. So a lot of people are coming out with tapes, and so they'll buy them at shows. Records, a lot of my friends have record players. Like Crosley does a lot of kind of cheap little turntables, and I see those quite a bit. Um, CDs, no. I'd say most of my friends uh, illegally download or stream music on Spotify. I like to have my music with me even without internet access, so I tend to buy stuff on iTunes still. Right, right instead of Spotify. So yeah, because that's the, that's the big break. That was the big shift, and that happened for my generation. You know, I mean, we're, we've got a foot in either camp where it's like we grew up, I mean, good God, when I was a young kid, I remember 8-track tapes, which was the most archaic and ridiculous format that music has ever been foisted upon the general public. LPs were around, and cassettes were the big format, then CDs showed up, and like it just it's, it always continued to morph, and now that it's been disconnected from a physical product... It's different how people go about purchasing their music or not purchasing their music. It's it, you said something a minute ago where you said the John Bryan album, his first album, is not on Pandora or Spotify and therefore is hard to find. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's, that sentence kind of amuses me a little bit because there's got to be ways to get copies. It's just not on the streaming services. Right. I mean, you can order a CD of it right. from Amazon. Right. Yeah. So that makes it difficult to find. Yeah. Because you, difficult meaning you actually have to purchase it. 
Right. Well, you <laughs> have, have to purchase it copy. and then, yeah, you have to have a physical copy. Yeah. You have to put it in your disk drive. If you have a disk drive on your computer, because a lot of the Apple stuff doesn't even have optical That's drives true. anymore. Some anyway, I'm talking with Mason Summit. He's a young singer-songwriter. He's based in Santa Monica, California. You should check him out, man, because he's doing great things already and he's got great things ahead of him. He's got a brand new record that just dropped just late last year in November. The record is called Loud Music and Soft Drinks. We're going to play a track from this to see what you guys think of it. This is called Right Mind. Mason Summit, an Independence Day. No, I tried the best I could More than anybody in his right mind would I wanted you so bad Tried so hard to hold on Wrote you all those bad songs Maybe I was mad But a man that wants you all to himself single Wednesday night. My guest tonight is Mason Summit. He's a Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter at Santa Monica, specifically backed up to the ocean with the pier and the sunsets. Uh, he's got two records out already at the tender age of 18. His first record is called Absentee, but his brand new record called Loud Music and Soft Drinks was just released late last year. That's a track right mind from that record. Also visit masonsummit.com to learn everything you need to know about him. 
So Mason, man, two records by your age. Tell me about putting together an album at like age 16. Well, I've just been really lucky. Um, in ninth grade, I started working with a producer who was a big kind of pop producer in the 80s and writer. And um, it didn't really work out as far as artistic vision, but it kind of gave me the recording bug. I've been doing home demos from garage, well, from tape to uh, garage band to logic for many years. And then this is um, recording software you're talking about. Yeah. And then my mom started going out with John McDuffie, who's the musical director for Rita Coolidge and who runs Groovalator Studios out of his house. And so I wanted to record because I had been and then stopped. And um, it was going to be an EP. Then we decided to do an album. We recorded it over that summer after ninth grade in 2012. And um, I had enough songs by then. They were over a few years. The oldest song I probably wrote in eighth grade on my first album. And um, it was definitely a learning experience. And there's a lot of stuff I did differently on the last one. And the last one, I was a little more experienced. Both of them, I produced myself. Um, and most of the players are friends and colleagues of John McDuffie. So we, we have some really good players who yeah. join me on them. So he seems instrumental then, I mean, no pun intended, in putting, <laughs> in putting this thing together because, I mean, how else would you have been able to find players of that caliber? Oh, yeah. You know, because we always, you know, good God, you should have seen the first demo we made on a four-track cassette trying to do a full demo with drums and keyboards and guitars and bass. And, you know, you only have, like, we didn't even have a mic stand. We would tape a microphone onto a vacuum cleaner because that was all we had to hold the mic back in the day. I mean, it sounds like the Beatles or something, but this is the 80s. You know, it was a long way past that. Um, so, but then, you know, you, you, you said you started on cassette. Was that like a four-track, multi-track thing or just like a when handheld I was, thing? Yeah, when I was nine, I remember for some reason I was inclined to record my songs and I had a Radio Shack handheld okay. tape recorder. So just a little tiny like Little thing. tiny one, yeah. And then... In sixth grade, I started doing the most lo-fi you can get digitally, which is just recording with my internal computer mic right. on the GarageBand program. Yeah, And then I started using USB mics um, by Blue and kind of starting to multi-track and get better at that. Recently, yeah. I got Logic. I haven't used it too much. I do have a four-track tape recorder and, um, and an SM57 in my yeah. garage, but it's kind of a hassle. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it is, I have to admit, a lot easier to record digitally than on tape, although I understand the appeal. Yeah. Um, my duo recorded an EP this summer that was on tape. We didn't record ourselves. Um, but ribbon mics, um, huge reel-to-reel tape, an old Tascam, um, all analog. That was a totally different experience. And where did you, you know, is this someone, is someone's studio or is a friend of yours or like who's got this analog stuff? Well, a friend from school, um, Sebastian Jones, his dad, David O. Jones, is, um, I think he's a realtor by day, but by night he's a punk rock bass player and a studio gearhead. And so in their garage in Santa Monica, they have all this equipment that Dave has acquired over the years. Um, really cool compressors and amps and guitars, upright bass, and we could do it all there. Um, it was just a project that we took on this summer, and um, it's not like the, the tape lo-fi. 
idea that a lot of people have yeah, of yeah, tape yeah. nowadays, it sounds really good. It's not yeah. degraded. Yeah. yeah, it's warm. Well, that's just it. You know, tape tape was the format, and it still is for some people. I saw Christopher Nolan's new movie, Interstellar, recently, and it's a it's a kind of a comparison. He still he did that on film, and I think really? I was reading that. Yeah, and he shot it on film, and he said that the it may be the last movie that is a seventy millimeter IMAX, which is that large film format with a mm-hmm. giant screen, because everybody's converted to digital, and they just nobody's going to support that anymore. So, recording to analog is something. It's a choice. You know, that if you've got the budget or the access to the gear, that you will choose to do that for a specific reason. And it's, it's interesting talking to you because digital always existed for you. Cell phones essentially always existed for you. There's no other, there's no other way. That's true. But I'm, it's still reason enough that I'm aware of it. Yeah. Luckily. Yeah, well, but I think you're ahead of that curve or in some weird way behind that curve in a good way because you've done your homework and you know that it even exists. So Mason, why don't you indulge us and play a little bit of live music here. You've got your guitar, and I think you're going to play a track that you'll find on your most recent record, Loud Music and Soft Drinks. This is Mason Summit with the track Interloper, live in the Independence Day studio. I am an interloper I don't belong here in your world I can't fit in to your life I'm like a misfit piece in a poorly made jigsaw puzzle I should have seen you in my backyard Should have known you while I could Now I'm trespassing and it's awkward When you find me kneeling on your floor Don't try and answer my prayers anymore Anymore I am an interloper I don't belong here in your world I've said enough, I've said too much And this is no mistake, this is how it's supposed to be when you find me kneeling on your floor don't try and answer my prayers anymore anymore I am an interloper I don't belong here in your world My name is Joe Armstrong. His name is Mason Summit. He's a Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter. He's the tender age of 18, but man, is he ahead of the curve and behind the curve at the same time, but in a really, really great way. We were talking before. First of all, great song. 
Thank you. A great song. It's great to hear people writing uh, such well-constructed songs this earlier in your in, early in your career. And it's funny when you say that because you think about the Beatles. Look what they were doing when they were like 17, oh, 18 yeah. years old. So, man, it's, it's entirely plausible, entirely possible. Keep at it, whatever you're doing. I will. Uh, Thank you. Great tune. And you were talking before, you've got this duo, The Clowns Will Eat Me, which is like a two-piece kind of thing. You were talking about its origins. And you were talking about like analog recording of this album. Now, was that a conscious choice? Because you could have done it at home on Logic just as easily, but did you consciously choose to do it on analog recording? Well, I'll tell you, um, over the past, like, the school year that we had that we were actively this duo, we would write a song in one night and then stay up really late recording it really methodically on first GarageBand and then on Logic. And those recordings sounded really clean and we would always double track everything and make it sound really Beatlesque or or Elliot Smith esque, and then it was a whole different experience when um, our friend's dad just came up to us. He was really a supporter of us and of the teen music scene at my school, and he was like, "I've got these um, AEA ribbon mics, prototypes, on loan from a friend, and I have all this tape in my garage. Let's just do a, do a recording this summer." And so we did. We went in for a couple days and um, recorded seven tracks, including one we wrote when we were probably like 13, um, just for fun. And it's up for free on SoundCloud, actually, free download, just The Clowns Will Eat Me. Definitely a different sound than, than our demos. Yeah, but intentionally so. Yeah, it was a lot looser because... You know, it's not going to be a perfect take necessarily, but it's going to be the best take. And um, spirited, energetic, um, you have to be a lot more kind of connected with each other. Just look at each other across the room and know what's coming up. Right. Because you can't just fix it necessarily or just do each part one at a time. There were overdubs, but the basic tracks of two guitars, two vocals were done live. Yeah, because that's the thing, and I think that's one thing uh, as we get farther and farther from the age of things like analog tape is like actually being a musician, playing with people, and not just overdubbing everything. Technology is, I mean, technology was, analog tape was the, you know, bleeding-edge technology at one point. That was revolutionary. But the idea of being in a room with other musicians and making actual vibrations in sound simultaneously is something that I think, I, I hope that people retain. I hope that people continue to do that because there's so much stuff on the radio now that sounds, it doesn't even sound manufactured. Like that would be an honor to say it was manufactured. It sounds canned in every way mm -hmm. possible. They, technology enables us, but it also gives us too many choices, I think. Well, yeah, because when you're recording on tape live, you feel that everyone else is kind of depending on you to get it right. And so, you know, we would if one of us messed up, it, it was kind of a drag. And so we had to be a lot more in touch with what the other was doing and yeah. listen, listen to each other a lot more. I listened to albums that were recorded on tape that are really complex, like um, anything the Beatles did or Elvis Costello. And the band is so tight and there are so many parts sometimes. Right. Or even um, Elliot Smith's first couple of albums were recorded in houses and basements on four tracks. Right. And they're so precise that I get the impression it took a lot more skill 
back then yeah. to make an album. Yeah, well it's it's well it's a different type of skill. Whereas before you would need to be a skilled musician, skilled performer. Now the skill is polishing something or taking a performance, you know, that may be better than mediocre but not George Harrison level mm-hmm. and then fixing it some way using technology. We can do amazing things now. But, you know, there's something to be said about keeping it honest with that kind of stuff. And, in, you know, in light of that, you know, you did your first album. How old were you when you did your first album? Uh, we I talked was about it before. 15 when we were 15. recording it. So, yeah. okay, so this song, let's play another song. You've got a song uh, from the first record, which is called Absentee. You know, so how old is, what is this song? And when, how old were you when you recorded this? If you're, if you're, or was, when you wrote it, I'm sorry. Like if you're recording was, it at 15. I was 15 when I wrote it as well. Okay. I wrote it um, pretty soon before recording it. It's the first track. Of my first album. Okay, and we come back. I, like, I really want to touch on a subject I've been thinking about all week when I knew you were coming in, which is where do you, you know, you're 15. What are you writing about? You know what I mean? Like you're not writing about needle and spoon in the basement like Keith Richards. You know, you're not a heroin <laughs> addict by the age of 15. There's a certainly amount of artistic license, but I want to come back and touch on that. So let's play sure. the song first. So this is Mason Summit playing a track, Absentee from his first record. This is What Will Become. on fire, turn to ash Would you sweep me in the place where you keep your trash Or would you cool me? The rains came down and made me rust Would you throw me over in disgust Or would you polish me up again? These shadows of doubt are keeping us down But I'll go on Just to see what will become If the earth should quake, the concrete split I'd pull you out from under it I'd pull you out Cause I need you more than I need myself And the truth is, I don't want to screw things up again These shadows of doubt are keeping us down But I'll go on just to see what will become And no, it don't end here With any luck, we'll just go on and on and on and on If I stood you up six, turn to three, would you stay up late and wait for me, would you? Wait for me These shadows of doubt are keeping us down But I'll go on Just to see what will become No, it don't end here With any luck, we'll just go On and on and on and on and on 
Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day. Thank you very much for listening. Happy New Year. My guest tonight, Mason Summit, Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter. That's a song called What Will Become from his first record, Absentee. He's got a brand new record out called Loud Music and Soft Drinks. You can pick that up at masonsummit.com. So what I want to talk about is when you're a very young singer-songwriter, like what, where do you turn for inspiration for writing lyrics? Well, I mean... Obviously, as a teenage boy, a lot of it is going to be... Young man, Mason, come on. Well, yeah, but 18. Right. Um, so a lot of it is going to be uh, girls and uh, romance and that sort of thing. Right. Um, it, sometimes it comes across as kind of disingenuous if I try and write about something that I know nothing about. Um, but songs on my first album, I had a song called Jesus Behind the Ice Cream Cart, which is about an immigrant who owns an ice cream cart. Um the title track, Absentee, is about the death of my dad. And um, songs. some songs are more generally about, you know, struggling in life and not necessarily specified to romantic issues. Um, on this album, I tried to diversify a little bit. I wrote a song, the next song I'm going to play, that's kind of about um, homelessness and crime in L.A., which is a huge issue, and it's kind of close to home right. geographically. Right. Um, writing songs um, about friendship issues or other types of relationships that I realized existed. Um, with my duo, we made a really conscious effort to write about things that were different from what other people wrote about. Right. So if you listen to our record, it can be kind of off-putting. We have a song from the perspective of a divorced father uh, spending Christmas with his son who wants to be with his mom. We have a song about murder called Safe, we have a song about being in love with a prostitute called Love Ain't Free. Um, and then we also write about things that are m- more close to our actual experience. And that's something that, you know, people have to remember about all writers is that there's a certain amount of artistic license. I mean, yes, of course, we want to think all of our songwriting heroes have done all these sorts of things. And some of them have most certainly done the, the things, the, the seedy things they've written about in their songs. But some people couldn't possibly have, have been through all those sorts of things and still be a functional human being. And it's, it's fascinating to me to see where different people blur that line, where they bend that mm-hmm. line, where they draw that line. Where in your case, as a young singer-songwriter, you know, there's different experiences that you're going to have, different things you're going to be writing about. There's the things in your immediate world parents, uh, friends, girls, cars, you know, the world uh, is ahead of you, you know, Mm -hmm. but you're ahead of the game because you're already, you know, you've stepped aside to have the presence of mind to step outside of yourself and to write about a different topic and different writers do this different ways. Like they, they have exercises they will play like today. I'm going to write a song about, it's got to be third person and it's got to be, it's got to name a place in it. Like Tom Waits songs always names places. Yeah. Like every Tom Waits song, Johnsburg, Illinois, Ninth and Hennepin, specific places and specific times. And you can do that because writing is, is a, like a muscle. It's like an exercise and you have to work it out. You, you have to like work that muscle to get good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some people are just blessed. Like I feel like Randy Newman could like 10 songs could fall out of his pocket while walking across a, a street corner, you know. But some of us, most of us have to work at it. And even the great ones work at it. Do you, as a writer, do you have a process? Do you, like every day, do you try to get something down, just wait for the lightning to strike? What do you do? I don't, I wouldn't say I'm prolific in any way. I mean, right now I'm lucky if I get one song a month. I'd say that's pretty prolific for some people. Well, maybe, 
but relative to a lot of other people I know yeah. or or what it seems like a lot of my favorite artists, how often they write, yeah, uh, I would like to be writing more than I am, and it's um it's because I have all these things in my head when I'm writing, like I want to write a song in a different key with a different strumming pattern that's about something else, yeah, or I want to use a specific chord in a song um so that kind of holds me back sometimes. Um, as far as writing, I mean, I really am listening to every component of a song that I like and kind of extrapolating from it. Yeah, having those types of ears, like a producer's ear. You know, like I was driving home from work last night and listening to a song from the new Decemberist record, and I was thinking, man, I really like the way this record sounds. It sounds pretty simple. You know, I'm not hearing a lot of things. It's kind of a ballad song. And then I thought... Well, let's let's listen to this. Let's let's count the instruments. What am I hearing? Drum set, bass, vocal, of course, doubled sometimes. Acoustic guitar, main rhythm part, also somewhat doubled in some parts. And then you've got some pedal steel. You've got uh, Gillian Welch singing some background vocals. Probably David Rawlings too. You've got a piano. You've got tambourine. Some people don't think about those sorts of things. They hear a song right. en toto as itself. Mm-hmm. But when you make music. You can pluck out those certain things. And then when you go to do your own music, you apply that same sort of thing to it. You know, in terms of arranging, let's talk about arranging a little bit. Like you come up with a song, uh, you know, whether it's with your duo or you're on your own. How do you decide how you're going to dress it up? Well, I have a lot of um, friends who have heard my new album and have been a little bit disappointed, I think, because of the way I chose to arrange and produce it because whenever I play live, um, the way it happens is that I'm just playing with my acoustic guitar. And so that's how the songs kind of naturally sound to some people. But whenever I'm writing a song, I am usually thinking of other band arrangements to go with them. Like while you're writing it? Yeah. yeah I, I, too. I write songs acoustically pretty much exclusively, but a lot of the songs on this album ended up electric. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of acoustic guitar on it. So even though it's the way they started, there's always the seed of that in my head of how I'm going to arrange it, how I'm going to produce it. And it's funny, I, I like that you said it that way too, because that's exactly how myself and a lot of people I've worked with, how they think about it too. Like there's a Rhodes part or a Wurlitzer part or a Hammond part, or I know from the moment I start writing that song, I'm going to put a tambourine with every other snare hit. Like right away, I can hear it all in my head, you know, when I'm starting it. And like actually doing it is just creating what's already there in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very different way of going about it. And I don't write out all of the parts. Um, I know someone like Brian Wilson could do that. Right. But I certainly do not. And I feel like the people that I have come in and play parts should be able to bring something to it. So. I know that I'll want a certain sound or a certain type of drum pattern, um, like a surf rock kind of a beat, or I'll know what kind of a keyboard sound I'll want, um, like what you were saying, B3, Whirly, Rhodes. um, And I'll hear it all in a general sense in my head. And then I'll just kind of give instruction on the feel and the tone and where to play. Yeah, doing your musical homework is a really, really big deal, especially if you're going to be producing yourself or other people. Uh, you, how do I even ask this? Like, uh, where do you where do you do your research? I mean, is are you reading a lot? Are you listening a lot, or both? Or 
I'd say I'm just listening. Yeah, I mean, I'm such a gearhead. I spend more time probably reading about guitars and amps than playing guitar. Yeah. Just on the computer on Reverb.com or eBay and stuff like that, reading about different pickups and choosing which guitar to play on a song. Just listening to records, I think. If you hear it the first time, you hear it holistically, and you just hear the general sound. But then, um, an example is this year's model by Elvis Costello. Uh, so when I first heard it, just it has this consistent sound throughout. And then when I started listening further, you can hear the kind of cheesy, like, Vox organ sound. Like the Farfisa kind yeah, of thing sometimes. Yeah, Farfisa, Vox. Um, and you can hear how they put some delay on the snare which I used on some of the songs on this record. And um, even just how it's mixed, it's such a good sound. And you have to know how they did it. Yeah. Are there records that you find it hard to listen to because of the way it sounds? Yeah. Yeah, there definitely are. I think it's a problem I sometimes have with the Smiths. Yeah. Because I love the Smiths, but they, the production on their albums is so dated yeah. No offense, but the gated reverb on the snare. Um, I love Johnny Marr's jangly guitars, but mainly, you know, the drums and that sort of thing. I wouldn't say it's hard for me to listen to them because I think they fit in so well with that time that it works for their songs, and I can't imagine it any other way. Leonard Cohen is someone who I have that issue with um, because I love his songs, but I it's really hard for me to get past the... Um, the backup vocals yeah. and the production uh, choice. It sounds very overproduced sometimes. Um, like he's a huge band that's really good, but ever since the '60s, he's been bringing in like choirs and strings to really simple songs. And um, his last album, the songs were really good, but it sounded like he was using like keyboard brass and and bass and and kind of some drum samples. Yeah, and. Um, it was kind of disappointing to hear something kind of sterile. And that's what guys like Rick Rubin and T-Bone Burnett, I think, do better than almost anybody, is it's what you don't put on there that's going to make it good or make it unique or make it special in some way. Because it's easy to just, especially now that we all have unlimited tracks and we have unlimited virtual instruments, we can just keep throwing stuff on the wall and seeing what sticks, mm-hmm. you know, and overdoing stuff. And there's something to be said for this Phil Spector, like the wall of sound and over overproducing something it kind of becomes its own thing. But when you strip away anything that doesn't need to be there, and like you referenced those Johnny Cash records that Rick Rubin did before, or so much stuff that T-Bone Burnett has done, um, it reveals what's there and hopefully what's there is really, really fantastic. That kernel, that initial idea, that inspiration. Um, and it's, it's great to talk to someone, especially of your generation, who thinks in these terms, you know, who has read enough and listened enough to know that, that it's that how it sounds as important as as the song itself. Well, because it really affects how, how you interpret the song. I think how it affects you. Yeah. And um, I love Rick Rubin. I love T-Bone Burnett. I'm a huge fan of his production. Um, he knows how to have a big band and a lot of instruments and make it sound like it's not. Yeah. Like if you listen to King of America by Elvis Costello, they're really top session musicians and there are a lot of parts but it sounds natural somehow it's just his touch 
Yeah, and that's something that's kudos to you as well, because like the hallmark of a seasoned musician, again, is knowing what not to play, not playing all the notes all the time. And every time I see a young musician, I'm not that sounds terrible. So many times when I see a young musician, it's like they've got, they've, they're energetic and they're at the beginning of their career and they've got to prove themselves and they want to sing loud and high and play fast. And that's awesome. But it, it's like it's like a big asterisk by your name. Like, I am a young musician because I'm doing these things. And to mm-hmm. see someone like you or you specifically who knows when to not play and knows what to leave out, um, it's a good thing, man. Thank you. Keep it up. So how about another tune? We've got about enough time for, I think, two more songs, and we got to get the hell out of here. So what's this next one going to be? Great. This is another track from the album. It's kind of a social commentary of a number. Yeah. In a Lonely Place. And what are you commenting on? Well, I'm commenting on um, the downtown uh, homelessness and crime issues. We're talking about downtown Los Angeles, not downtown Santa Monica, right? No, yeah, definitely <laughs> not. It is an issue there, yeah, but definitely not on the scale that it is in um, Los Angeles. Look, it's, man, if I was going to be homeless, I would go to Santa Monica. That'd be oh, the first yeah. place I would go. I don't. I haven't. I've lived in Chicago. I have no idea why people are homeless in Chicago. I would crawl if I had to, to get the hell out of there. Anyway, all right, Mason Summit with another song from his new record, Acoustically, on Independence Day. Uh, This is In a Lonely Place. Downtown a candle flickers Soaked in sweat and cheap malt liquor Down on the corner making a deal Try and fight that urge to feel In a lonely place To the left, a newspaper crinkles Over a face with a brand new wrinkle Winter breeze through the rags and the time Through the salty skin and grime In a lonely place She takes the chair nearest the door Counting tiles on the floor And when it ends she makes pretend she's fine You shouldn't believe her You shouldn't believe her this time This city's a crime scene burning Walking past itself, never learning I'll draw the outline in chalk And maybe someday soon we'll talk In a lonely place In a lonely place In a lonely Mason 
Jason Summit's social commentary. The song is in a lonely place. You can find that in his most recent record, Loud Music and Soft Drinks, available at his website, masonsummit.com. Also drop by facebook.com slash masonsummit. And he's also got a YouTube page, youtube.com slash user slash themasonsummit, which sounds very verbose, but there's some cool stuff there too. Uh, and everybody's a multimedia artist now. Like We're all making videos and we're all doing all these things at once. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about like the... the like the, the cool stuff you're doing. You've done a lot of cool stuff already. Um, but I want to know, like, you know, you're, you're under 21. A lot of the places that you would wind up playing, you know, uh, are, are bars, places you can't even get in when you're over 21. And that's just an example. My question is, we've talked about the great things. What are the challenges of being a 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old musician in the modern age? Well... That's true what you said. I've played at over 21 venues a couple times. I've played Hotel Cafe and Molly Malone's. And those experiences were ones that made me not want to do it again because my friends can't come. And um, they're probably my core audience, realistically. Um, But there are, I have to say, a lot of venues in L.A. that are willing to give teenagers a chance. Um, And my first booking was from a family connection. And so I think you kind of need that starting point. Right. But after that, I book all my own shows. I can just shoot an email to a venue and most of the time they respond. Um, that's really how I book my shows. Genghis Cohen, um, Wits End, all these local places, Room 5, they're really open to new talent. And um, it was surprising and it's really, it's good. But it is also a challenge because you come across um, feeling like you have it, have to prove yourself to a lot of people, whether it be the audience or the booker. You have to kind of sell yourself really well and <clears throat> not be afraid to talk about your accomplishments and um, what you've done and why you want to play there. And sometimes the age can be a positive thing because people will be more impressed with what you've done at that age. And then other times they'll... Um, I think they'll think I'm inexperienced. Right. And there's something else that goes along with before you said, like bringing your friends in to see you play. And like, that's where our, every musician's like core audience comes from initially is mm-hmm. their friends, the people that are willing to go see them on hey, a place like New York or Chicago or Minneapolis on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock when it's 14 degrees outside. It's a little easier to get them out in Los Angeles, maybe. But now we're in an age where we're competing with all forms of entertainment in our pocket at all times. You know, people at your show watching, <laughs> who knows, you know, the re- reruns of Mad Men on their phone at the venue, you know, so you have to work harder, I think, in some ways to maintain that or be more unique or in some way. But then again, you can also go to the booking agent and say, hey, look, you know, if you're willing to let high school kids in here, I can bring 50. Yeah. Because they're all my friends and they're all into what I'm doing. And, you know, maybe they're not buying $10 cocktails. They're going to buy something. It's easier and it's harder yeah at the same time the the one other thing is that in venues that do allow minors uh i end up playing really early right like 7 seven thirty or 8 or eight thirty if i'm lucky and oftentimes it's actually because most people can get out there um they don't want to be in hollywood at 10 o'clock um but other times it's really hard because people don't go to clubs that early or there will be a lot of traffic getting to right. the area. Like my next gig is at room five. Or, or the club's my last not even gig. open. Yeah. Like what time is the early show at Hotel Cafe? Nine? I think seven. Maybe. Oh, really? There's yeah. a seven o'clock show? Yeah. Well, good for you. And um, 
my last show, which is Room Five in in December, there um, there's a lot of traffic getting to that area from the west side, right, or from that, anywhere. Yeah, from anywhere that early. Um, so that's something I have to deal with. Um, you know, people, adults, even uh, waiting for the person after you. Um, like at Wits End, there were a lot of older people who were waiting for this really cool acapella group that was on after me and just completely talking over me. But that's stuff that I think comes up for everyone. Yeah. They just and have to deal with. Even professional bands at a certain level. The band Cowboy Junkies calls them crows. Like if you look at their uh, their tour blogs or their you know their tour diaries, they'll be like, oh yeah, there are a lot of crows at this particular show mm. tonight because it's a professional band touring. Yeah, you know, and you never get past that unless you're unless you're Jeff Buckley, I guess. Yeah, you know, and obviously we know what you know the poor what befell that poor guy. Uh, we've got about enough time for one more tune, and one, this is something unique because we were talking before about who inspired you, and this guy's name came up from you several times. John Bryan, who does a oh, regular yeah. thing at Largo, which is a legendary venue out here in Los Angeles, extremely creative guy about how he goes about making music, and he's produced several albums by some people that everybody knows. So even if people don't know who John Bryan is, they've heard what he does. Oh, yeah. And why did you pick this tune? Uh, well... Every time I kind of introduce this song and say that I like the song called Trouble, people think it's the Cat Stevens song, which is also really great. But I picked this song because I'd heard about John Bryan through uh, his work with Elliot Smith. And then I, I first saw him at an Elliot Smith tribute at Largo last year. And then I realized, you know, I've been hearing him on things for so long without knowing it. He did countless film scores for... Uh, P.T. Anderson movies or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He produced a lot of records. His production yeah, Fiona great. Apple. Fiona Apple, thing. Amy Mann, even Kanye West. Um, but a lot of people don't know that he has one solo album out that came out um, over 10 years ago called Meaningless. And this song is the first song I heard off of that because I was just trying to find the album and I heard this track on YouTube. And um, it's incredible. I mean... The production on it, he's got pedal steel, and um, it's the one track on the album that he doesn't play all, all the instruments on, um, but the chord progression and the melody is really strange, and it's a poignant song um, about you know, a friend who's self-destructive, and um, that's why it resonated with me. All right, yeah. so looking forward to hearing this, man. This is Mason Summit covering John Bryan on Independence Day. Here's the face of trouble It's the face I wear And it may invite you in But I won't go there Here's a working model that generates despair And this baby cranks it out And it will take you out And I won't care It's 
job, Mason. Tackling John Bryan is no small feat, and you swing for the rafters. And I think you connected with the ball on that one, man. Home run. Thank you. Good work. It sounds it's definitely sounds, difficult. Yeah, sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, that's just it. You know, we, we hope that we can you know hold a candle to the people that we revere, uh, and to be able to do that in any measure is a good thing. So good work, man. Um, so you're, <laughs> you're finishing up high school soon, um, and what's, what's next for you? Um, well, I, uh, I applied to Lewis and Clark. And uh, that's definitely my top choice. That's in Portland. And I chose not to apply to an all-music school, which my friend who I'm with in The uh, the Clowns Will Eat Me did, um, because I definitely am interested in other subjects. Yeah. Uh, I definitely don't want to do anything else professionally, if I can help it. Um, but I find that I really enjoy the literature that we read at school and the U.S. history that we learn about. And I can see myself being happy and satisfied learning more about it. Um, and at the same time, I didn't want to be in a exclusive, uh, an exclusively college town where the only people you know are the people who go to school with you and the town is like one street. And Portland is such a vibrant cultural city on its own. And it's it's got a music scene and um, just really cool, nice vibe. Um, so I thought that it was a kind of perfect blend of being at a campus college that's definitely very centered and very driven by college activity. You know, it's not, it's not spread out like NYU or, for example, in New York. Um, but at the same time, you have access to this great city. And it's, it's far, but it's not too far from home. You can get really cheap and fast flights back to LA. It seems like a really good distance and a really good fit yeah and it's far enough away that if you get arrested your mom won't see your name in the paper <laughs> exactly 
I say that in jest, but it's kind of it's a kind of a fun. That's what college is all about, you yeah. know. As human beings, you know, from the moment we're born, our job is to differentiate ourselves and become individuals and be whatever it is that we're going to become. Now, maybe that doesn't mean getting arrested, but just in case some stuff goes down, there's a little bit of a pad there, and it's probably good for the parents too. Like, yeah, get out of here, kid. Yeah, <laughs> go do your thing. Spread your wings. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, so anyway, Mason Summit, man, it's been a, it's been really really great getting to know you. Uh, we shared a stage uh, at. Uh, uh, Skip Heller's Fools on Stools uh, late last year, sometime in late summer, early fall. It was great to play with you. Uh, and I wish you the best of luck in everything that you do, man. Good luck selling this new record. I hope you sell 10 trillion copies. Thank you. And I hope you get into the school of your choice. And I hope you keep doing what you do because I've said this a hundred times, you're ahead of the curve. Thank you. And uh, of course, visit Mason Summit at masonsummit.com. Pick up that new record, Loud Music and Soft Drinks at his website. And uh, I don't know, stay in touch, man. Please do. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So thanks to Mason Summit, also to the Independence Day staff, Valentino Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The festive Tony Tonloke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. Be good to one another.